Welcome to Sports Spectrum, the sports and faith podcast that brings Jesus back into the conversation. Here's your host, Jason Romano. Welcome everyone to Sports Spectrum. As always, we are sponsored by Compassion International. And today's podcast is a unique opportunity to learn about the man who is in charge of Compassion International. We've told you about what they do and the work that they're doing to release children from poverty. But today we get a chance to learn the journey, the story of Jimmy Mayado, who is the president and CEO of Compassion International. And yes, we talk about compassion because it's really amazing the work that they're doing, helping to release children from poverty, the real work that they're doing in the trenches in these countries. But Jimmy's story is just awesome. I mean, Jimmy is a guy who said his parents moved, and you'll hear the full story in the podcast here, but he said his parents moved 41 times in 61 years of marriage. 41 times. And Jimmy was raised in seven different countries himself after being born in El Salvador. Jimmy was a graduate of SMU, and he was a member of the 1983 Division I track and field championship team with SMU, and then competed in the 1988 Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, as a decathlete, representing his birth nation of El Salvador. In 2013, he was named CEO and President of Compassion, and Jimmy's story, like I said, is a powerful one, and he's a really good storyteller which makes for a perfect podcast. And so take a listen to the journey and the powerful story of Jimmy Mayato, president and CEO of Compassion International here on Sports Spectrum. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Awesome to be with you, Jason. Total pleasure. Love the connection we've had over this last year. Yes, very excited. And first off, again, thank you for for being partners with us here at Sports Spectrum. We've been sharing about the great work being done with Compassion, and you know, for the last year or so. And just, we really are just want to thank you for coming alongside with us and helping reach people for Christ. Well, we love what you guys are doing. It really is transforming lives, marriages, families, and uh, uh, believe in what you guys are doing so deeply. Grateful for that. That's great. I appreciate that. Now, let's let's learn a little bit about your story because your journey is is quite the fascinating one. I first heard it at one of our conferences a, a year or so ago and uh, just blown away by some of the things that you've got to experience and kind of the, your, your upbringing. I know you were born in El Salvador, but raised in seven different countries. Tell me what that childhood is like. That sounds like a fascinating childhood. Well, I probably have to start with uh, with my mom, who was born uh, into poverty, knows what it's like to keep a dirt floor clean, clean. daughter of immigrant farmers that lived on the Mexico-U.S. border, uh, grew up, you know, completely in a Mexican context uh, back in 1934. And uh, but she was a real adventuresome young lady. And then later on, married another uh, young man. They both came, you know, to Christ. And then they set out to just explore the world. In their 61 years of marriage, they've moved 41 times. Oh, my gosh. So I mean, we were like nomads, I think. Uh, before I celebrated my first birthday, I'd already been to six countries. As you mentioned, I was raised in seven, eight different schools before graduating high school, 26 different homes. So we moved around a lot, mostly in the developing world. And my dad was an engineer. 
He was building roads and dams and powerhouses, transmission lines, water systems. Um, I remember moving to Santa Cruz, Bolivia, and they didn't have electricity 24-7. And that was my my dad's job was, in fact, to provide electricity there. So I remember what it was like to go through major portions of the day with no electricity and that just being normal. Uh, As you mentioned, I was born in El Salvador uh, in the middle of a jungle where my dad was building – he was building a a powerhouse and dam there and uh, was born there with no doctor's support, (laughs) just Mm. natural birth. Uh, but it was it was quite the adventure. And uh, I will say this, that usually when when you move around that much, it's not good for kids. But my life was really stable. Um, actually, I, I actually thought it was normal that every family moved every year and just later on discovered, no, nah, it's not quite normal. Um, but it was stable for me because of my parents faith in Jesus. Uh, my family was my first small group. My family was my first church. Uh, We would do little church services, just our family alone, as we would move in between countries and and go from one church to another. There were always gaps in that experience. So uh, we did church just as our family. And so it it was a it was a uh, I look back on it now and it was just a rich, rich time of being exposed to different cultures, being exposed to the needs of the world, particularly the poor. Uh, which actually has become central to my life calling because of it, I think. Yeah, I wonder for you, too, because you said as you look back. So when you're going through it, are you appreciative of what you're going through? Are you do you even have a sense that there's others that are, quote unquote, from a worldly perspective, better off? How is that view when you were going through this process as a toddler, as a young, you know, young boy and then even into your teen years? Well, since I didn't know any other experience, I I thought that was normal, and I I enjoyed uh, experiencing the different cultures. Now, every time my dad would come home and say, "Hey, we're going to move to this country," of course, every we would all complain and say, "Oh, we're not going to find friends like that, or a church like that, and school like that." You know, why do we have to move so much? So there was that for sure. Hmm. But then um, my dad would say, well, you know, wait till we get to the new place. You're going to find new friends and and the church of Jesus is everywhere. And our hearts will get tied to a new group of people and and uh, and you'll have a growing uh, pool of friends. And I'll never forget my dad's 80th birthday. We invited uh, friends that they had made throughout the years and and so many of them came and it felt a bit like the United Nations. The <laughs> diversity that was in that birthday party was was really beautiful. And again, I, now some of my other siblings, I think they struggled with it a little bit more. Um, but I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, now, there were some things that I had to deal with. Um, I think some of my achievement orientation. Uh, Some of it was greatly fueled by good stuff, but there was some other parts of it that maybe were fueled more by uh, an achievement orientation of wanting to be accepted in the new place because I was always a new kid. And the way to get accepted was to achieve or to perform or to 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 do well so that you'd be embraced and liked by, you know, by the new set of, of kids. So that led to, I think, some uh, people pleasing in my life that I had to process through and and uh, and and not be driven by that, um, but be driven by, you know, Christ in me and not what other people think. 
so, you know, that was probably the, the, the worst downside of it, uh, of moving so much. But again, on the whole, it was really an amazing experience that God used to even uh, mold me into who I am today and into the work I do today. You participated in the 1988 Summer Olympics, and we're going to talk about that time in a second. But obviously, there's an athlete in you there, a big time athlete in you. When did that start to take shape as well? Because you're moving from place to place. So I can try to imagine how sports was a part of your life as you continued to move to many different countries. Yeah, and it was the common denominator. So I'd move from one place to another. Soccer was mainly the deal. Everything was about soccer in most of the countries where I where I grew up. And my family background, dad and mom, they really had no sports background. But what did it for me was 1972. We were in Nicaragua. And that summer, as a little kid in elementary school, third grade, if I recall, between third and fourth grade, I saw and was watching the uh, Summer Olympics from Munich and everything that happened there, uh, of course, the tragedy of the 11 Israeli uh, athletes and coaches that were killed in that process, uh, you know, the whole concept of the Olympic Games uh, as a third grader just mesmerized me. And uh, soon after that, I, I started organizing on a regular basis little competitions in recess at school. <laughs> I remember starting, you know, high jump competitions. We didn't have mats. We didn't have crossbars. So we'd use just a tree limb was our crossbar. And we'd do high jump stuff and long jump and uh, hurdles and just try to, uh, you know, as best we could have little competitions. That's where it started for me. I just was sold uh, and mesmerized by the Olympic movement in third grade. Hmm. And I think about when I'm looking at your resume, and it says you participated in the 1987 Pan Am Games and then the 88 Olympics. So that's what, 13, 14, 15, 16 years later that you get to sort of achieve this dream that you were uh, putting together as a third grader. So walk us through the process of how you become an Olympian. How does that work for you? Well, it starts with that kind of passion and dream and aspiration. That could come from anything almost. For me, it was watching the Olympics. Could have been, you know, for others, you know, it's meeting an athlete or or a sibling doing something. Who knows what it is? But it starts with the dream and and your heart getting seized by that and a passion and a desire to want to move toward – you know, toward whatever that, that dream is. And so, um, I was a little guy, I was always shorter than other people, but man, did I have a desire to, to want to, uh, achieve. And, you know, by the time I was in sixth grade, I was able to jump over my head. Um, and we would, again, in these little pickup, uh, competitions during recess, um, I remember for our cross, you know, crossbars, we had this tree limb, but then we had found a, a stick that would, you know, go across about six, seven feet. We had trash cans with baseball bases that we would put underneath the bar as the bar got higher and higher and higher. Um, and so just seized by a, a, a passion and a vision and a dream for something, that's where it started. And then just being um, and just getting involved and, and doing it and having fun with it. Uh, that's where it started. And for me, I was, I, I remember Bruce Jenner, I think he placed ninth in the 72 games in the, um, in the Olympic games back then. And the, 
I loved all of the events. Yeah. I mean, I loved them all. And that's what eventually led me to do the decathlon. And again, it's a little counterintuitive because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 5'8 and 160 pounds. So I was giving up at least four inches and 30 pounds to the average decathlete. Hmm. But um, for me, that didn't matter. I loved it. And out of that love and passion um, grew a sense of commitment and training. And training wasn't work for me. Training was recreational for me and I couldn't get enough of it. And was just curious to learn that next event, whether it was the disc or the shot or the javelin or the pole vault or whatever. I just loved it all. I loved track and field and the whole where it came from and the Greek games and the, you know, the original Olympiads and all of that. I mean, I bought the whole thing from the beginning. So take me through the moment where you realized you are an Olympian and now you get to participate in Seoul South Korea in 1988 and be a summer Olympian and go out there and represent your country. Well, that's an interesting sort of twist to this too, because you had a lot of countries that you probably could have represented having traveled through so many places. So take us to the moment. And then certainly why El Salvador was the place that you chose to represent. Well, I'll tell you, um, I was born in El Salvador, so I'm a dual citizen, uh, and then became an American citizen. So I have both, I could have competed for both. And just so you know, and this is a significant part of my story and what even led me to compassion eventually. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in all these developing countries, during summers or times, we would come visit the United States. And the United States looked like the perfect country to me. Right. I mean, they had everything. And they would take us to places like Disneyland or San Diego Zoo. And then they'd take us to these amazing things called malls, which I had no idea. <laughs> in the developing world, they didn't have malls. And they'd take us to these malls and they had everything you could ever imagine or want. Uh, And then we'd come back home to where we didn't have any of that stuff. And so I wanted to I wanted to leave that world and be in the United States and be successful in the United States uh, where I thought it mattered to be successful as a kid. And so I didn't like uh you know, that I was born in Latin America. I, every time, first day of school, this is one part I, I tended to dread as a kid. First day of school, they go through the, uh, you know, the roll call and they'd get to the middle of the alphabet and there'd be a pause. And I knew why there was a pause because the teacher was trying to figure out how do you pronounce Santiago Heriberto Mellado? <laughs> and I'd say, yeah, just call me Jimmy. That's, that's good. I didn't even want her to say that name. I, I wanted to be known as Jimmy. I wanted to be seen as an American. So I wanted to compete for the United States, and everything was going as planned. Um, by the time I graduated high school, I was comparable to Bruce Jenner in five of the ten events. Mm-hmm. Um, SMU, which was the number two track team in the country, uh, recruited me and decided to go there. And we had some amazing people on that team. In 1983, we won the NCAA Division I title in track, indoor and outdoor. Mike Carter, uh, who was the all-time, still holds the uh, world record uh, for juniors in the shot put over 80 feet, uh, played nose guard for San Francisco 49ers, Super Bowl champ, silver medal in the 84 Olympics. We had a couple world record holders on the team, Keith Connor, uh, triple jump. So it was an amazing team. And I got to learn all the other events that I wasn't as good at on that team. So everything was in place, set the school record. And, you know, I wanted to see if I could qualify for, 
you know, 84 Olympics and 88, but for the United States, for reasons I mentioned earlier, I didn't want to represent El Salvador. Hmm. So everything was going as planned. And uh, I was redshirted one year to learn most of the rest of the events. And in my first, uh, in, in my junior year, which was uh, my junior athletic year, but my senior year academically, um, I was in first meet in decathlon in University of Houston. And as I took off in the long jump, the tendon behind my knee popped. Hmm. I'd never been hurt like that before. I flew through the air some uh, 20-some feet grabbed my hurt leg midair and landed on one leg, my right good leg, and twisted that knee with all the weight coming on that one leg. And in an instant, like, I thought, I'm done. I mean, it's over. And a few weeks later, I tried to come back too soon to try to make the national meet, tore it again. I would end up tearing that tendon four times in in a two-month period, trying to desperately come back. So the coach calls me into his office. This was after the second uh, time the tendon uh, tore. And he said, Jimmy, I know your faith in Christ. You've affected me. You've affected other athletes on the team. And I know that I've got a decision in my future to decide what am I going to do about faith. So I appreciate that. Uh, And I see your commitment to your God. And in light of that, I just have one question for you. With that kind of commitment to your God, how could he let this happen to you? Yeah. And, you know, I'm 21 years old at the time, confused. It had always been, follow God and he blesses you. And, and, and that was the pattern. And I thought, you know, follow God and he even blesses you with human uh, earthly results, right. victories, those kinds of things. I hadn't yet been through a major desert. I was about to. So he says, I understand that the trainers tell me you're probably always going to have a weak spot there. And, you know, we always compete for the national title. And uh, you're graduating with your engineering degree. I was set to go to business school at SMU the next year. And he said, I can't I can't do that. I can't cover that. Can't do the scholarship for graduate school. Mm. So, you know, he took my scholarship away for the fifth year. And I was devastated just devastated. Felt like I got fired. Um, I went up to the top of the football stadium and just bawled my eyes out. And then I got this crazy idea because I was asking God the same question. Why? And I remember telling that coach, I don't know, coach. All I know is a faith isn't a faith if you only have it in good times. And I'll agree with you. These are not good times, but my faith is my faith. So I went up to the stadium and prayed and said, God, why? And then this idea came into my mind. Oh, I see what you're doing. You're, you're going to heal me and the coach is going to come to Christ. I'll give you all the glory. It'll be a testimony to the other team members on how you healed me and made it to the national meet and we won the title again. And, oh, I see. This is awesome. So I prayed a prayer in faith. Lord, heal my, heal my, my tendon. Heal it. And in faith, I thought, all right, he, you know, he's healed it. So I ran down on the football field uh, and I took off running just to confirm that it had been healed. And that was the third time that it popped and tore. And I remember falling down on that field and God was dealing with me in a different way. And I was learning more lessons through failure than through victory. 
Mm. as is always the case I found in my life anyway. So, um, and then I tore it one more time a few weeks later, again, still trying to make it work. So, uh, I quietly closed my career at that time. This is 1985 and I thought I was done. And then in 1987, through a happenstance meeting between my dad, who still had work in Latin America, sat on a plane next to the president of the Track Federation of El Salvador. And they started talking. He said, I, my son used to do the decathlon. These were his marks. And he said, are you kidding? That'd be way more than our national record. I don't, why didn't he compete for us? He said, well, he never really thought about that. So in 1987, out of the blue, I get a letter from the Track Federation of El Salvador asking if I'd represent them in 87 in the Pan Am Games. And, you know, I was as low as could be at that time, done, didn't think, you know, no one was interested in me at that time for sure. So I said, okay. So in 87, I went to the Pan Am Games. I was working a full-time job, training at night. And in the eighth event, uh, tore my leg again. (laughs) Wow. But it was after I'd competed and, and got some heights in the pole vault. So all I had left was the javelin and the 1500 to get through that to try to maintain my fourth spot. And wrapped up the leg, got through the javelin, got through the 1500 and got, you know, maintained my fourth spot there in the Pan Am Games, missed the medal by one. And, uh, and then that's when they said, well, if you're interested, can't make you any promises we're in the middle of a civil war and we only have enough money for six spots in the 88 Olympic Games. Only six spots, all sports, biking, boxing, cycling, whatever. We only have six spots. So even if you're the best in your sport, doesn't mean you'll go. And even if you qualify, doesn't mean you'll go. But we'd like to we'd like to invite you to try. Hmm. So I took a leave of absence from work, went down to El Salvador and trained. Uh, they were in the middle of a civil war. It was awful. Um and on a asphalt track uh, with the worst kinds of facility you could imagine, I was able to just qualify. And then it was at that point holding my breath to see if I'd be picked to be one of the six slots and was. And then went and had the Olympic Games in, in 88 in Seoul. And out of the 42 that signed up, I placed 26th. But I was healthy mm. beginning to end. And uh, I don't I you know, I've only done because of injury, you know, I've only done four healthy decathlons in my life. Um, and that was, you know, for me scoring at a, at a level that the coaches thought I should have scored in college. And by the way, I actually went back to SMU and asked the coaches there to to train me. Could I come back uh, and train there? And uh, my coaches in college uh, said yes. So I went back down to Dallas and I trained with them going back and forth from there in El Salvador. So it it was for me um, uh, a way back into a life that I wanted to uh, leave. And I'll never forget the president of the Olympic Committee. The last thing he said before I left El Salvador after the Olympic Games, he looked at me and he said, you know, so many of our high potential young people, they leave. They go to Europe, they go to the United States, and they never come back. And they looked at me and he said, please don't forget us. Please come back. Wow. And I got to tell you, Jason, I, I think I did. I think I did forget them for a couple decades. Um, again, I had a lot of growing up to do. And, uh, and I remember sitting in a meeting 
this was a few years before I came to Compassion. And I'm sitting in a room with executives in on our executive team. And uh, the leader was bemoaning the fact that we didn't have enough diversity in the organization. And so we don't have diversity here. We don't have diversity in our staff ranks, don't have diversity in our volunteers. Then he said, and we don't have diversity on our executive team. And I'm sitting in the circle. Hmm. And I thought, wow, do they know? (laughs) So I slowly raised my hand and I said, now, just making sure. I mean, you guys do know I'm Hispanic and that. My real name is Santiago Heriberto Mellado. And everybody kind of laughed, but the person next to me said something that they didn't intend to hurt me. They didn't. To this day, this person, we have an amazing relationship, but this person leaned over with their arm and pointed to me and said, oh, but you don't count. Hmm. Wow. And two thoughts hit me. The first one was, well, I finally made it. I'm finally American. I'm finally not seen as Hispanic. I'm Jimmy. I'm not Santiago. Um, And the second thought was the one that would impact me more deeply. And that was, I take it as of the Lord because of its impact in my life since then. And it was, um, and that's not you. What are you running away from? And why don't you like how I created you, your name, where I had you be born, what are you running away from? And that was the one that I ricocheted in my soul a lot and started to uh, bring me back home to where I came from, uh, who I was born, and loving that, not trying to hide that. And uh, wow. so that, that then brought me back to El Salvador and wanting to serve El Salvador, but also other countries that are in impoverished situations around the world. And eventually that was the starting point that led me to compassion six years ago of wanting to give my life and to really leverage the fact that I grew up in the developing world. The last 20 some years uh, in the United States, 25 some years in the United States, serving in the well-resourced world, particularly the well-resourced church. And now here at Compassion, being called to lead the building of a bigger bridge between the under and the well-resourced world. And, I, you know, I, it's hard for me to, you know, believe how the Lord brought me full circle all the way back around. And at the inauguration, when I just came into presidency here six years ago, my 84-year-old mom was able to be there. And afterwards, she came up to me, still a tiny lady, 5'3", Stood there staring at me, didn't say a word. And I said, Mom, are you okay? What's up? She didn't say anything, hugged me, pulled back, trying to get a word out, couldn't talk. Hugged me again. Three times she hugged and pulled back, trying to talk and couldn't. Then finally, quickly, in a final hug, said, Hablemos más tarde, which means we'll talk later. So the next day I came up to her and I said, Mom, what was going on there in that moment after the ceremony? And she said, you know, when someone is born into poverty, they never think it's going to be a benefit to their children. That's something you want to release your children from. Right. Raise them out of that. And yet I could see me growing up in poverty imparted a certain DNA in the life of my son 
that's become central to his calling. And I just was overwhelmed with gratitude at the journey that Jesus brought me on of taking what was hard and making it into good. Hmm. Not only my life, but my kid's life. And I just wanted to express it and just couldn't. <laughs> wow. I love that. Jimmy Mayato is our guest here on Sports Spectrum. Let's just turn the page. I know there's a lot that happens in your life for you know a while there, but for time purposes, let's go to when you start working with compassion. And I love that story with your mom there and kind of full circle for yourself, releasing children from poverty. We talk about that. I mentioned that. It feels like every episode, and I never get tired of saying it because it of the powerful effect that it really does have when someone decides to sponsor a child. Can you take us through uh, maybe inside the work being done and what you've seen with your own eyes and just coming to become the president and CEO of Compassion and the great work they're doing? Well, it is a beautiful work. I'm honored to be able to be the servant of now 7,500 churches led by indigenous leaders in some of the poorest, toughest communities in the world. Uh, we serve in 25 countries. And as you said, our mission is to release children from poverty yeah. in Jesus name. And that child, actually, we start when it's prenatal in the, in the womb. We can start as, as early as that, all the way, way up to 22 post-graduating from college or vocational school or whatever. So it's that whole spectrum. And we only do our ministry in partnership with the local church. Our strategy is the full gospel of Jesus Christ, the full gospel that we believe is the most effective strategy to release anyone from any kind of poverty in Jesus' name. And we're particularly called to serve children living in extreme poverty situations, but to partner with churches. And like I said, we partner with 7,500 churches growing at 1.5 churches a day. And then those churches are in a real tangible way, the hands and feet of Jesus to the children, to the families that are within uh, walking distance of that church in these communities. And it's a beautiful thing. I've had an opportunity to visit now 28 of our 35 countries um, and to see these heroes on the front lines of of, of fighting uh, back the effects of poverty that rob children and families of hope and thoughts of a better future and provide them uh, a a relationship with Jesus Christ as we also meet the physical and the emotional and the cognitive needs of the children, Uh, not, you know, so it's a, it's the full holistic gospel that is the core of our strategy as we love on these children. One of the great things that we've seen, I've been to different places, including conferences that our parent company, Pro Athletes Outreach, puts on, where they have this sort of virtual reality uh, experience with compassion. And I'll put on these glasses, these virtual reality goggles, however you want to call them. And suddenly I'm transformed into this country to see the work being done. Can you explain a little bit where, for example, somebody's listening and might be saying, I want to get involved. And I can tell you just personally myself, we sponsor a 30, a 13 year old boy from Haiti. We pay $38 a month, but we know where that's going. And I think when I went through that virtual reality experience, it really showed me that this is the best $38 I spend every month because I see where this money is going. Can you take me through sort of where exactly the sponsorships entails and helping these kids be released from poverty? 
No, that's great. And, and and I join you there, Jason. We've been sponsoring children, our family, for long before I came to Compassion and was able to visit the field and our children before I came to Compassion. So I was very familiar with the ministry when I came. But to be able to go to that church and have a, a file and, and go to the bookshelf or the filing cabinet and see the binders, one per child, and be able to open up that binder and see where that $38 goes to provide for that vaccination or providing for uh, the meals or providing for the education fees or, uh, or even shoes or school uniforms, or it can be anything that's preventing that child from reaching their full God-given potential is what that $38 could go to alleviate, to support, to to move that child along. And it's amazing in these settings what can be done with so little of resources. Because they're living on less than $1.90 a day, many of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, you know, $3 a day, it varies. Uh, but all in these uh, very, very poor situations. So to be able to go to that church and see the tutors, and, and we have about we have about uh, 100,000 workers in these 7,500 churches, about 15 or so workers per church, and they serve about 250 children on average per church of children that are within walking distance of that church, and they, they get them together in the church, and they spend on average in the duration of a sponsorship about 4,000 hours of direct contact with these children Mm. during their most at-risk years of their life in a local church. And often, as you could imagine, you know, if the children are being served during the week, where does the family go to church on the weekends? Well, they end up going to that church. So it's it's an amazing – well – we're not necessarily doing it for church, church growth reasons, but because of the way we do it, it often results in incredible church growth uh, uh, in terms of that church's impact on the greater community, not just the children. I love that. And um, I know how compassion has really affected a lot of professional athletes as well, and they're getting involvement. Certainly Nate Solder, who was on this podcast a few months ago, the New York Giants offensive lineman, Super Bowl champion with the Patriots. He went on a trip with compassion and and his wife and talked about uh, on the show what that difference made in his life. What's that been like for you to see a guy like Nate and others really buy into what compassion is all about and be involved and make a difference? Well, it's inspiring. I mean, it's inspiring to sit down and talk to Nate and Lexi and see how their situation with their child, uh, just very, very serious health challenges there with one of their children. And then they saw how other children were living around the world. and, And they said, you know what, had our child been in that setting, our child probably wouldn't have even survived. Mm. And it's only because we have the resources to come around our child that our child is, you know, is, is, is able to get the care and the love and the medical attention needed to help him, uh, you know, have a long and thriving life. And so they were, their heart was seized with compassion and empathy for uh, the children living in a very difficult situation. So they have made it possible for over 1,600 children to receive the loving care of a church through sponsorship. They have launched 
four different child development centers. They've also launched uh, four different child survival programs, which is our prenatal program that I talked about earlier of serving these pregnant moms and their children all the way through one year of age. And then at that point, they can join the sponsorship program in that local church. It's home-based initially, and then at four years old, it becomes church-based. And then that church walks with them and walks with that family. And Nate and Lexi have made that happen. And the lives of 1,600 children, because of their commitment, are going to be changed forever. So inspired is really the one word that comes to mind when I think about um, you know, Nate and Lexi and what they're doing. They're living beyond themselves. They're living as Jesus would, giving themselves to those, the oppressed, the marginalized, the poor, children in poverty. So they're a beautiful couple. I love that. Jimmy, this has been great as our time winds down. First of all, I want to mention the website. It's compassion.com slash sports spectrum for those listening to the podcast. A real chance to make a difference here. You can check out the website and learn more information about how you get you can get involved and sponsor a child and release them from poverty. Compassion.com slash sports spectrum. Jimmy, last question. We asked this question to all of our guests here on the show. I'm curious to know what the Lord's doing in your life right now. What are you learning from God today in the season of life where he has you uh, right now? Taking full ownership of building a soul-satisfying existence as I meet the demands of leadership at Compassion, demands of being a dad and a husband, and being able to create a place where my soul is thriving, uh, that I never put the cause, even the cause of compassion, which is so precious to put that in the driver's seat of my life, that only Jesus can be, only Jesus is, is trustworthy enough for me to place the development and growth of my life. Uh, only he can handle leading that. And so I never put the cause in front of, uh, way of life in Christ. And, but at times it's tempting yeah. You know, when you got pressures and stuff you got to do and and uh, a lot of demands on your life that seem to escalate every year, expectations of others on you to just keep that place of centeredness in my heart that no, who I'm becoming in Christ is, in fact, the most the most uh, important contribution I can make to compassion in the kingdom. It's not what I do. It's who I'm becoming. And if I'm becoming the person Jesus wants me to, to become, then what I do will be a natural fruit of that kind of life, but not the other way around. So that, for me, Jason, is like a constant reminder. Who I'm becoming in Christ is the most significant contribution I can make. And then let what I do for Christ flow out of that. But don't get the order wrong. So I, I need to remind myself every day of that challenge as I kind of uh, face the demands that come my way. I love it. He is Jimmy Mayato, president and CEO of Compassion International, 1988 Summer Olympian representing El Salvador. Jimmy, this has been great. Thank you so much for sharing your story, your journey, your heart for Jesus and your heart to help others. And to just really appreciate the work that you're doing. And again, appreciate your partnership here with Sports Spectrum. All the best to you. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll do it again soon. Would love that, Jason. And we as well love our partnership with Sports Spectrum. And, and blessings on you and the incredible ministry that's happening there. And many thanks to Jimmy Mayato, the president and CEO of Compassion International. 
for joining us here on Sports Spectrum's podcast. Great, great storyteller. And man, what a powerful story of learning uh, lessons through failure and the torn tendon injuries that he suffered and trusting God when things don't go well. Uh, just the idea of him as a kid growing up and moving all over the world and in and out of different countries and coming to the U.S. and then going back home and just lessons and appreciation for uh, what he had and a, a connection to God through it all and trusting in God in all that he's done and now doing amazing work with compassion. And I don't have to tell you about how awesome it is to have compassion be sponsors of this Sports Spectrum podcast, to be partners with us. And we love them. We really do. And I hope after hearing Jimmy's story and Jimmy's heart that you might consider sponsoring a child through Compassion for $38 a month. Again, the website is Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum. Compassion.com slash Sports Spectrum. All the information is there. An opportunity for you to release a child from poverty awaits you. Check out the website to learn more. I promise you it's the best money you will spend every single month knowing that it's going to help release a child from poverty and providing them with food and education and medical care and vocational training. And as you heard Jimmy talk about, it's all done to bring kids closer to Jesus Christ through the local church. Compassion.com slash sports spectrum. That's the website. Check it out and sponsor a child today. Many thanks to Jimmy Mayato, and thanks to you for listening to this episode of the podcast. You can reach us via social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at sports underscore spectrum. And please consider emailing me directly, jason at sportspectrum.com, jason at sportspectrum.com. Any guest ideas you have, any feedback you want to provide, any thoughts about compassion or Jimmy and his story? please send it to me directly. I would love to hear from you. Jason at sportspectrum.com. Also want to encourage you to check out our website, sportspectrum.com. It's a great website with content every single day on the intersection of sports and faith. Definitely bookmark that website. You don't want to miss the content that's being put out each and every day, including a daily devotional at 6 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday, to start your day right in the Lord. Check it out, sportspectrum.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Brand new episode of the Sports Spectrum Podcast coming your way. Have a great rest of your day.